Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Work in Intellectual History. My name is Selma Sondan and I'm a master's student of intellectual history at the University of St. Andrews. With me today is Dr. Stelios Ziglidopoulos, who is a professor of corporate social responsibility at Catch Business School in Marseille in France. Stelios' research focuses on aspects of corporate social responsibility, its communication and its role in the internationalization of businesses. Other interests of his lie in non-market strategies, international business, organizational corruption, environmental entrepreneurship, and stakeholder theory. However, today Stelius and I will be discussing the value of history of ideas for business ethics by exploring the applicability of Plato's ethics on modern management. Welcome Stelius and thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So, at first glance, your research interests do not really seem to fit with our podcast, but last year you also published an article in the Journal of Business Ethics entitled On Becoming and Being an Ethical Leader, a Platonic Interpretation. That's what we want to talk about today or take as a starting point. So um, just to give us a starting point, could you briefly outline what this article is about? Yes, um, this article, basically, uh, the, the starting point for this article was a simile that Plato has in uh, somewhere in the middle in the Republic, where he talks about the ship of state. And he basically says that the ship of state is a, a ship where the owner of the ship is old and deaf and doesn't know really how to run the ship and everybody's trying to become captain. And uh, everybody's trying to bribe him or to get him drunk or any way they can convince him to give them on, to give them the, 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 the captainship of this ship. But in reality, the only person who really knows how to be a captain is that guy who's sitting at the corner, who's looking at the stars and the winds and all that. And they think he's just a stargazer, irrelevant to anything, but he's the one who actually knows how to navigate the ship. The problem is that he will most likely never be captain because he doesn't compete for the for the chair. He just, you know, knows how to run it if he gets it, but he he cannot. He does not compete. So chances are that one of those uh, demagogues, if you want, will become captain who really doesn't know how to run the ship. And this was something that uh, Plato started uh, and discussed about the running of a city state. What what I started from this uh, kind of pessimistic uh, simile uh, was to, ex my, my paper starts from this, this rather pessimistic simile to examine the, um, the impact, the possibility rather, that ethical individuals can become CEOs. Do they have a disadvantage or why do we see so many scandals in other words? That was one of the things that was in my mind when I was, um, in the back of my head when I was reading the, all this material, because uh, we had seen a lot of scandals back then. So is it? So my question was, well, why don't we have ethical CEOs? Why do we have so many CEOs who run into trouble? Uh, is it because the ethical CEOs have trouble becoming? Is this ethic is being an ethical leader a disadvantage in becoming an actual leader, mm -hmm. uh, or a president, or whatever? So that was the sort of the angle that I was uh, taking when I was questioning uh, the Republic of Plato. And um, basically what I managed to identify from Plato's Republic was that he uh, brings in a very interesting, he brings a number of interesting points, but one of them that I thought was very new 
was the fact that the capabilities of a leader um, are not necessarily the capabilities of a person who gets elected or a person who becomes a leader. So there was this compatibility between what he calls the dialectic and the um, rhetoric. Mm -hmm. And it could be in a sense for our purposes, for organizations today that we select leaders based on the pure financial performance, uh, effectiveness, whatever you want to call it, but completely ignore their ethical aspects of being a leader. And that's why we end up like that. In other words, we select for the wrong things. Mm -hmm. And those two things are rarely compatible. That's one of the things that Theta brought into to his, uh, into his um, discussion of leadership in the Republic, among other things. Okay, thank you. Um, before we start diving into the results uh, or the article more specifically, I was wondering whether you could tell us how you came to read the Republic um, at all. So your training and particularly your other publications prior to writing this article have mostly focused on business administration and strategic management. So how come that you read the Republic and then applied it to modern management? Well, it's sort of... Um just happened when I was writing my PhD dissertation in uh, reputational management in uh, McGill, Montreal. I was like most people who write their dissertations got stuck and didn't know what to do. So I started doing all kinds of things, including taking a math course <laughs> and reading the Republic. <laughs> so the thing that I found after reading uh, the, not the Republic, but a lot of Plato's writings, basically, not just the Republic. Uh, I found that I got unstuck in my thesis and I kept moving. So it was a positive feedback kind of thing that, that reading Plato improved my writing, my ability to think in different topics completely. But it helped me. Mm -hmm. So, okay, this is a good thing. Let's keep it up. So I got interested in this and uh, got more and more interested to the point where at some point when I was working as an um, uh, assistant professor at uh, Cambridge, I, I took the advantage of the fact that there were, summer, there were evening courses in London at the uh, University of London for philosophy. So I took a course, a master's course in, um, in philosophy and I majored in Plato's Republic or that paragraph basically and the result from that work was the this paper that was published in JB and I have been continuously reading on the side on this and it's sort of a uh, I don't want to say that it's the first topic of my research maybe it's the third mm -hmm. but it's a consistent third it's not going to go away other things I might stop researching at some point this I'm not okay and ever since I've read a little bit more of Plato, I've read about the criticisms of Plato, a lot of, of Popper basically, and uh, my thinking on this has evolved somehow, but uh, it's something that I want to continue reading because I find that it has a lot of implications for today's management. Okay. Um, yeah. That's an interesting point. And I want to come back to that later on to discuss more generally um, how, uh, intellectual history and business ethics intertwine or could intertwine. Um, but before that, I would like to come back to your article and um, discuss this notion of dialectic and rhetoric that you already mentioned in your short introduction. Um, could you explain how Plato used these two words and how 
you then um, applied them to modern, modern management? Uh, Plato uses the term uh, dialectic, drawing on what uh, Socrates was doing, who was basically trying to find answers to questions like what is justice, what is love, what is war, well, no, knows what's war. Sorry, yeah, the days we're going through now. What is courage? That's more appropriate one. Um, and uh, he was basically saying that dialectic is a way that you, we can engage in inquiry about finding the truth by basically discussing it, asking questions to each other continuously. But it requires a sort of an honesty on the, on the behalf of both people. It doesn't require any kind of, um, I want to get a point over you. That's my main point here. No, that's not it. The point is that we're both trying honestly to learn the truth. That's the whole point of the dialectic. And he assumed uh, Socrates never really got to answering any questions about what is justice or what is courage or what is uh, um, whatever he was trying to help, PAT or whatever he was trying to ask. But Plato said that we can reach an answer through dialectic. And eventually we get this some kind of illumination if you want. And some people can, if they persist in this path, they can reach a, a higher state. They can become uh, philosophers, real philosophers, but they can actually, in a sense, they can know the truth. They can get to know the ideals that are outside the human experience if you want. And that's where his uh, story about the cave is very important where he says that most people live in a cave and they look at shadows. But the few, uh, the philosophers manage to get themselves away from the cave, crawl or whatever, walk up the, the hill and eventually see the, the real sun, the real forms. And that's that crawling upwards, if you want, is the dialectic that he says, he, he refers to. And the difference with rhetoric is, because, is that rhetoric uh, aims at just gaining a point. It's supposed to, it's, a, it's being done by the people in the cave and they are just trying to get uh, one better over the other. I mean, like uh, I'm trying to get to lead you and to convince you that I'm the best leader and give me the more money and things like that. So it's just a matter of politics as we understand it. But dialectic is different in the sense that it's trying to get to the truth. These are the two different things. And what he says based on this kind of very brief and very caricaturish, if you want, definition of rhetoric and, uh, and um, dialectic is that dialectic is important for people to being able to rule, to lead. The leaders need to have dialectic because this way they will know the truth and they will be able to lead their society, their organization, their whatever. On the other hand, in order for these leaders to get elected, at least in the in the surrounding, in the setting that Plato was familiar with, um, they need to have rhetoric. But rhetoric and dialectic, he was, he was saying for, me, for a number of reasons, including some metaphysical ones, including some practical ones, are incompatible. So it's like trying to say, uh, first of all, there's not enough uh, time in somebody's life to become trained and proficient in both rhetoric and dialectic. It's like saying you want to have a, what was the example that uh, one of the philosophers writing on Plato was saying? It's like saying, um, well, you cannot be a yo-yo ma and a Tiger Woods. Mm -hmm. It's impossible. 
It's one or the other because there's not enough time in your lifetime to do both. Mm-hmm. That's one. And another one is that the two are incompatible, incompatible ethically or incompatible um, sort of based on the assumptions on the beliefs that, that one has. Uh, so these are the two things that, that, that he brings here. And he says that some people have an advantage in becoming leaders or being promoted, we would say today, based on the fact that they are good in politics or they're good in um, um, rhetoric and they can convince others. But this means that they are willing to do things that people who know the truth or people who through dialectic have reached the, 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 the truth or the ideals are not willing to do. Mm. So that, that's the difference, I think, that, that he brings us in, he brings into the discussion, which has not been addressed a lot in the current leadership uh, 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 literature. Yeah. And this opposition between, or this conflict between dialectic and rhetoric, um, this is one of the reasons why, according to Plato, it's a rare event that a philosopher can become a ruler. Um, you developed a framework out of this with certain points that, in your opinion, hinder the emergence of ethical leaders in business. Um, could you illustrate this framework? What does it specifically mean in modern management? Well, in modern management, basically, uh, sort of mirrors what, what Plato was saying in his uh, the constraints that Plato identified in having um, capable or ethical or whatever you want to call it, leadership, good leadership, basically. One is that we have a limited number of suitable individuals to start with. There are not that many. These suitable individuals might be corrupted along the way. There are time limitations. Um, there is the, this sort of uh, what we would call today cognitive legitimacy. But the understanding that we need a philosopher king is not there, that we need to have somebody who is in charge, who is uh, more um, knowledgeable or is better than others is not actually there in the politics of today. And um, quite often we select leaders based on the wrong criteria. And given this incompatibility of capabilities, if we select leaders based on uh, one criteria, then by definition, he or she will be the wrong leader because he will not have what we need. We will select somebody who looks good, let's say, but is not good in, in practice. And we have seen this quite often in the political sphere, which is more visible today for us, where people get elected. They're very good at getting elected. Mm. But once they get elected, they don't really know what to do or they do the wrong things. As a friend of mine said once for a company, G, GM actually, he was saying, well, this person got to become president of GM by going through all the, um, the ranks of GM and got promoted. By definition, he's the wrong person. That's a very pessimistic way to look at things. But unfortunately, this is the thing what, what Plato is pointing to, that quite often we select on the wrong things. Mm. And that, that is quite important, I think, to, to bring into back into focusing on the selection criteria to include ethical aspects of a personality into this. And you said before that your thinking on this has evolved since writing this article and since first reading um, Plato. I was wondering, 
do you think that in Plato there are specific clues as to how selecting, promoting, or rewarding more ethical individuals in business organizations could work? Uh, there are, but I think it's very, very early in his uh, development. I mean, let me explain. Uh, Plato uh, was witnessing a society at the time, the Athenian society, who was making uh, a number of mistakes. And his uh, solution to that was that we, sh we don't have capable leaders. We should find capable leaders and give them full authority. That's what the philosopher king is, is a, is a guy, somebody, and it's not, it's not a guy, basically, it's, a, it's a, a man or a woman. It was one of the early things that Plato did, maybe the only person who was that early who said that, that um, philosopher king should be both men and women, mm -hmm. that what matters is what's in your head, not if you're a man or if you're a woman. That's not really a, an important characteristic for leadership purposes. Um, and uh, that was, uh, basically, he said that this is... What do we need to focus on? We need to find these individuals and make them, give them full authority, train them after a period of, I mean, he, he said, what was it, 10 years of math or something like that? It was a long training. It wasn't very straightforward. You wouldn't get to be a philosopher king until you were 50 or something, you know, just like, like that. So you start with the best suitable individuals, the most talented ones, and then you train them to death, basically, and then they might be philosopher kings. That was his idea. But what I think has happened is that he proved in the Republic that even if you do that, proved is a big word, but let's say he, he showed in the Republic that if, the, if, if even if you do that and you end up with these individuals, these few individuals on top of the, in charge of society, eventually, the society will deteriorate and we will end up with the rule of a dictator. He shows in book nine, I think, the, the decline from his perfect society. He says, as he goes along, he says, okay, there are some problems about how do we get these individuals to be in charge? How do we do that? There are a lot of issues there and I won't go into that. But even if we assume that these individuals are in charge, what's going to happen afterwards? What was going to happen afterwards, he includes some kind of a sort of disproven eugenics kind of system that he had back then and all that, which is not really uh, very accurate to say the least. But even so, what his main point here is that eventually a society will deteriorate and we will end up going from his system, which he called aristocracy, from the rule of the best, nothing to do with uh, today's aristocrats. And um, we go to something like um, a democracy, which is uh, the rule of those who want some kind of uh, honor, then to an oligarchy, which is the rule of those who are just want more money or who are the rich ones. And then to a democracy, which he saw as sort of a, the rule of the mob and then to a dictatorship. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, he said that even if we start from this, position where we have the best ruling, we end up with dictators. And then the next step that he took when he was looking at um, the laws, which was the last uh, piece of work he was working on, he didn't really, I don't think what we have is the, his finished work. I don't think he actually finished it. He's a little rough still. Um, 
was basically saying that we need to find some kind of system to control the best rulers or the, the rulers of the society because finding the best rulers and giving them a full authority doesn't really work over the long term. It will deteriorate sooner or later. So in a sense, he was going towards a checks and balances system, but the way he was, go the, 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 the pace he was going, it would have taken him a few centuries to get there. But, you know, that's what I think that, that the Republic is, is. He's not arguing for philosopher kings. He's actually showing the, the futility of first getting philosopher kings to be absolute rulers. And even if we get philosopher kings to be absolute rulers, the futility of over the long term, maintaining this ideal society. So what becomes obvious after the, the Republic is, for, what becomes what is obvious for me after the Republic is that we need to find a different system. Mm. And this different system needs to have a, a structure that somehow limits the leaders. Now, I don't pretend we've found that yet, but I'm just saying that it's the direction you can see, the mm. arrow you can see it from there even though it's not very specific. So would you say it's it's all about the system um, and it's not even possible to have a leader that is both ethical and effective? No, I'm saying we need a leaders who are ethical and effective, but this is not the whole story. Mm. I mean, Plato was pointing to a deficiency, but I think that if we look at, if we, I think what he was proving, he was showing in the Republic is that if we defend only on that, even if we are able to find the perfect leader who's ethical and, and, and uh, effective, if we give him or her the whole power and uh, we don't have any controls over him or her, then we will end up with a dictator over the long term. Hmm. In a sense, we need multiple um, elements to come together so that we can have a good governance in the society. I think that's where, where we're getting at. And one of the things that we have somehow forgotten today is the fact that we do also need ethical leaders. It's not just the system, but it's not just the leader either. Mm. You need both to somehow complement each other. Because the system will elect the leader, the system will allow leaders with better qualities to emerge and will maybe constrain them if they are going in the wrong direction. That's what you want, ideally. But, yeah, and you want the leader. To, so, so that is the, the, the I think one of the points here that if we go one-sided towards we want the perfect leader, we will end up over the long term we'll end up with a dictator hmm. who might do all kinds of things. Yeah. I mean, it's it's fascinating how much there seems to be in Plato to be applied to the modern world and the modern business world. And um, from that, I would like to get a bit more general um, and ask you, what value do you think does the study of the history of ideas have for business ethics, for business studies and for business in general? Well, um, what I think is, is valuable is the first of all, is that um, it gives us a, a, a kind of humility in the fact that we did not invent the wheel. It was invented hmm. a long time ago. 
And uh, there are people who have been discussing these issues that we are dealing with today, perhaps with different terms, perhaps with uh, different implications. But these issues have been around for a while. And there were a lot, a lot of uh, very capable and very intelligent and people who, who, who discussed this and made significant contributions to all of these issues. And they have a lot to say for the problems we're facing today because some of them are not very different from the problems we faced a few centuries ago. Mm. Maybe, uh, you know, the phones are different or something. <laughs> uh, we don't have uh, carrier pigeons. Uh, we have cell phones, but anyway. Um, oh, actually, I just found out the other day that the French army still has a unit of pigeons. Oh, wow. <laughs> I was surprising what yes, they do. Anyway, in case... Well, there's uh, some continuity. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but the point is that all of these discussions have been going on for a long time. We can learn from these people. And uh, first of all, this removes a, a very big obstacle in our... Uh, capacity to learn, which is arrogance. We think we found everything today, yesterday. And second, it gives us um, a lot of, uh, uh, I don't want to say ammunition, but a lot of, uh, sorry, the terminology these days is always about war and yeah. uh, a lot of uh, material to draw from on uh, uh, older leaders, older uh, thought leaders who have really done a lot of work on this and uh, we need to, to draw on that because I think it's provides some continuity. I mean, there were whole empires, there were huge monuments, there were vibrant societies. You, you cannot say management was discovered in 1985 when, you know, you know, we have to put this in a historical perspective, understand what was going on before, use these ideas. Mm and so on. I think this will be a significant benefit, but I think the, 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 most, the most important benefit is that it will kill some of the arrogance that we see today. And, and, uh, we saw it very well in, in the crisis in 2008 where some economists were saying, oh, this is not possible, it's not gonna happen, never has happened. But there never was in, as long as, the, as far as the data went, which was 1980 or something. Yeah. They had data in the computers until 1980 <laughs> and said never, uh, the 1980s, not never. Huh? There was a 2000 BC, yeah. Go on. So anyway, so that's uh, I think a very important thing of the history of ideas. Hmm. And I would like to draw your perspective on the separation thesis that you also talk about in the article and ask: um, Do you think it, or how do you think uh, an intellectual history perspective could also? contribute to the mitigation of this separation of business and morals that the thesis talks about? Well, a separation thesis is something that uh, Ed Freeman, who is the founder, the father of stakeholder theory has brought into the discussion. And the separation thesis basically says that, uh, he basically says that there is a separation fallacy and uh, the separation thesis that says we can actually have uh, business decisions and ethical decisions separate is wrong. Mm. You cannot do that. Every decision has ethical aspects and every decision has um, non-ethical aspects to it. So you cannot say that. Um, and this is very important, I think, for us today because the way we have, in many cases, 
and uh, the paradigmatic cases Enron. Um, in many ways that we define effectiveness for leaders or for organizations is purely financial, ignoring a lot of other things. And we define effectiveness in such a way that we kind of ignore the ethical aspects. We ignore a lot of people. We just focus on one number, return on equity, return on investment, return on assets, whatever you want to call it. Hmm. But focusing just on that can lead us down the Enron path. So we have to somehow see effectiveness or leadership effectiveness or organizational effectiveness in a broader way that actually includes ethics in it. I mean, after all, ethics as a, as a term started out not as, um, not as uh, morality, you do something right or wrong, you go to heaven or not. That was a Christian interpretation later on. It basically started as a way of saying, how do we do things right in society? So how do we do things right in society is basically something that should be effectiveness for our organizations. But if we take it the Enron way, we could say, how do we do things right is how do we, how do we maximize the profits and if we can cheat and steal and um, hide, our pro hide our procedures so that we can convince people we're making money, then that's right. Well, that, no, that's not it. And eventually they go bankrupt for that. So over the long term, it doesn't work. Hmm. But we need to, to, to understand that this separation thesis is leading us down the path of selecting the wrong leaders, down the path of evaluating organizations on the wrong criteria. And there were certain hints of that when uh, some companies like Siemens, for example, re, um, re sort of rejuvenated their structure after the crisis they had in 2006, seven, eight, somewhere there, uh, where they basically they said, well, we cannot just uh, reward our managers for financial performance. We have to reward them for ethical performance as well. So they changed the criteria to include ethics in the whole thing. What do you think is the role of education in this regard? Um, do you, for example, think it would be advantageous to bring aspects of intellectual history or maybe even philosophy into business studies and business schools? Yes. Yes, that's, that, that cannot be a, a doubt in my mind that this is important. Mm -hmm. And you see that a lot of this, uh, if you if you bring them, if you bring such issues in, you can see the the light goes on in some students, and they realize that oh, that's not new. That's the same thing. That's you know he was talking about that. Oh, that's relevant. Or that you know you can see this, but it's quite often that people don't bring this in, and you know it's it's it's, it's but uh, but yeah, the answer is yes with emphasis. Let's say <laughs> okay. Um, well, I think this has been an interesting discussion and I would like to wrap it up, but allow me one last question, um, especially considering uh, that intellectual history and business or business ethics should be brought together in, uh, in business schools and academia. I was wondering, where do you see specific research questions or fields of research where both disciplines could work together and achieve results? quite a few actually but yeah uh, first of all i would like to see a lot more of philosophy and especially uh, political philosophy and moral philosophy come into the business curriculum and 
discuss these things. Uh, second, I would like to see a lot more uh, links between um, what we could call political history, sociology, whatever you want to call it, but the history of, of society as it has emerged and the study of society as it has emerged into um, the into the businesses today, into the discussion of how businesses evolve and their implications today. Because I think we can learn a lot from political history, international relations, and uh, all this uh, philosophy, classics, whatever you want to call it, history, and learn a lot about uh, what applies to businesses today. Because um, these issues are not new, they, they've been around for a while. There are issues of power, there are issues of uh, uh, ethics, they're the good old ones, violence, you know, all of those things. So I think they're, it's important to look back. Okay. Well, Stelius, thank you so much for this really interesting discussion for your perspective on Plato and on the history of ideas uh, for business ethics. Um, I'm looking forward to hearing more from you and I wish you all the best. Thank you very much. Thank you.